Welcome to Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. This program is part of a series of podcasts doing in-depth interviews on free enterprise and personal liberty. I'm your host, Danielle Smith, president of the Alberta Enterprise Group. Go to fraserforum.org where you can subscribe, comment on the program, and see links to the studies we discuss. You will also find archives of previous episodes. Our email address is danielle at fraserforum.org. We'd love to hear from you. When we think of this in terms of the benefits of electricity for human flourishing, you know, because we don't consume electricity for electricity's sake. I said to my students yesterday and they laughed, we don't consume electricity, we consume cold beer and warm showers. But the, the one early, kind of early 20th century technology other than lighting that is really good for human flourishing is the washing machine and all of those in-home technologies, refrigeration, uh, you know, so that has obviously implications for women's ability to enter the paid labor force. I'm Danielle Smith. Welcome to another edition of Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. I'm also president of Alberta Enterprise Group, and I can tell you something, electricity is one of the biggest problems in trying to incentivize companies to move to a jurisdiction. It seems like it's going nowhere but up, and my guest is going to tell us why Lynn Kiesling she is a research professor and co-director of the Institute for Regulatory Law and Economics at the University of Colorado, and she joins me now. Lynn, thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks, Danielle. Happy to be here. I think this is one of those issues where I think we all have an intuitive sense of uh, the importance of electricity because we all turn on our lights, we all get a power bill each month, but I think we have a surprisingly a surprising lack of knowledge about how our electricity systems work. So. I think I want you to go through a bit of a history lesson because I know that you've written papers about the history of uh, uh, electricity development. I'm not sure how far back we we should go, but but let me begin with the question about how important reliable electricity is to our lives, to our economy, to our continued economic growth when you look back historically. I think uh, the, the punchline is it's incredibly important and the historical story of how we got here is fascinating. Uh, we could go back as far as the 17th century and talk about the natural philosophers experimenting with static electricity, but for the purposes of how, we, how the electric system that we use has developed, I think it's good to start in the 1880s. And the the place to start, I think it's simultaneously in the US and in England, there's a lot of innovation going on. And you know, famously, Thomas Edison and his 10,000 hours spent developing the correct filament to go in a commercializable light bulb. Uh, and similarly, around the same time, Joseph Swan in, uh, in the Northeast in England was doing something pretty much the same. But Edison, really famously envisioned the electric system as a system from having the generator located within sort of a two block radius. He started in, you know, in Wall Street in, in you know, New York and uh, owning the entire system, all the assets in the system, all the way through to the lighting fixture on the inside of your home. And so that was going to be a, in economics, we call that a vertically integrated uh, firm 
and he was going to pay for, you know, he was going to provide it all. He owned the capital, you know, Edison Electric would own all the capital. You pay one bill and just, you get this electric service and lighting at the time was kind of like the, uh, the iPhone today. Lighting was the it technology. And um, you know, so electric lighting was competing with uh, natural gas lighting fixtures inside the home with candles, with kerosene lamps. And um, you know, so electric lighting was a, was a big and important deal. And then fast forward from there, you have a lot of development of larger scale technologies for generating electricity. Uh, most importantly for, for our discussion, the, uh, the famous initial experiment of this was in 1895-96, building the uh, turbines under Niagara Falls that we, you know, the, the generating facilities that we share across our border. And, um, you know, that was the ability to produce electricity at a scale that was previously unheard of. No one had ever conceptualized being able to produce at that larger scale, but very few people live around Niagara Falls. So you had to have the big transmission wires to carry that, um, that current to Buffalo and Rochester and ultimately New York City and Toronto and where, where people actually live. Uh, and that was, that was the big technological breakthrough in the early 20th century was that integrated large scale system. But of course, as a large scale system, it does raise concerns that were very um, top of mind in the progressive era about the ability of large companies to quote unquote, exploit customers and raise prices. Well, and it's so, interesting because yeah. now the progressive concern is around envir environmental issues. And so mm -hmm. now we're having a conversation about do you start building microgeneration and smaller generators closer to load so that you don't have some of these big disruptive projects. We will get there eventually. I don't <laughs> want to leave out Nikola Tesla. I feel like he is so important in the electricity story and Thomas Edison gets all the press. <laughs> but, and why is that? Why is it that we we know Thomas Edison and his 10,000 attempts to build the, to, to, to build the light bulb, but, but Nikola Tesla, everyone sort of thinks of him as, gosh, he almost made it, but not quite, even though he did have dramatic impact yeah. on how we use electricity. Can you tell us that story? I agree completely. Tesla is so underappreciated. And um, you know, Edison, I think yeah, Tesla and his, his ultimate collaborator, George Westinghouse, don't get the attention they deserve. Tesla, uh, when he emigrated to the US from Serbia, he worked for Edison as an engineer and, and he was just this genius, just coming up with new idea after new idea after new idea, patent after patent after patent. And of course, Edison's business model was create a bunch of stuff and patent the heck out of it. And, and so Tesla worked really well in that environment, except that um, Edison really wanted to stick with what's called direct current. Um, and in a direct current network, it kind of operates the way the internet operates, where you, know, you send data and it, you know, it kind of goes in a direction and it shows up and gets reassembled. Um, Tesla developed this technology for sending electricity down a set of wires called alternating current, where the current goes as a sine wave. And you, what you do is you bundle together 
two or three, depending, two or three wires and the current is going as a sine wave and you can send a lot more electricity with less of it being lost because of course there's friction and so you lose stuff along the way. And so Tesla was like, this is great. This AC technology is fantastic. Uh, Edison's like, you know, talk to the hand. No, we're going to stick with DC. And, you know, he, uh, Tesla got frustrated enough. He's like, well, I'm going to take my patents then. And, you know, and so he hooked up with George Westinghouse and they famously uh, won the contract to illuminate the Chicago Columbian Exposition of 1893, uh, which was called the White City. And part of the reason it was called the White City was all of the illumination. And so that was really their proof of concept, which then Tesla and Westinghouse took to build the Niagara facilities. And so if you go to Niagara Falls and you can tour the, um, I think you can tour the turbine halls underneath. And if you look on all of them, you'll see the little placket, the plate on there with Tesla's patent information. Tesla invented the another technology called the induction motor, which, you know, initially the electric system was built for lighting and, and Tesla created the technologies that enabled electricity to come into the factory floor, not just for lighting, but also to replace the old belt drive uh, mm -hmm. machinery on the factory floor. So he, his influence was profound. We live it in is, Tesla's network. You know, it's remarkable. I have a 1903 home. And so I'm very aware that there were not as many electrical appliances back in the day because I've got extension cords running everywhere to be able to fuel all the things that we now have. But when did that breakthrough happen? The way you're just sort of describing it, because you described it like the internet, it's almost like once you've developed the system, all, all these really smart software designers went out and developed all the apps associated with how you could use it. It, it sounds to me like we had something quite similar is that we needed to develop a system to get lighting into homes and then kaboom just a flourishment of yeah. things that that developed out of that right. when did that boom really begin it was really in in terms of the uses inside the home it's very much the first two decades of the 20th century so 1900s 1910s um and it did start with lighting uh the the other one that i think when we think of this in terms of the benefits of electricity for human flourishing you know, because we don't consume electricity for electricity's sake. In, mm -hmm. in economics, we say the electricity, our demand for electricity is a derived demand because uh, we have the demand for, as uh, I said to my students yesterday and they laughed, uh, the kind of the phrase that we tend to use is we don't, we don't consume electricity, we consume cold beer and warm showers. And, and so our demand for electricity is derived from our demand for cold beer and warm showers. And, um, but the, the one early kind of early 20th century technology other than lighting that is really good for human flourishing is the washing machine, right? And all of those in-home technologies, refrigeration, you know, that improve human health and reduce the, 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 um, the kind of burden associated with in-home work. Uh, you know, so that has obviously implications for women's ability to enter the paid labor force and things like that. You would think with all of those in mind, maybe this gets a little outside of your area. It's it's remarkable to me that we don't have the backbone of these systems built out in every nation of the world. It would seem to me that because we've seen so much progress that comes from electricity development, that by now, over 100 years later, 
we we should see more progress elsewhere. Maybe again, that's a, a a different conversation to have. But do you have some observations on on why it is that that so many nations are so far behind? I think um, it's uh, electrification has so like for example in in most of the you know in in North America and Europe and uh, in um, in much of Asia not all of Asia, the, you know, electrification is near 100%, right? And so in, in the US and Canada, I think we achieved almost universal electrification by about the 1960s. Wow. Uh, and uh, the challenge is, and, and I think this is more true in Canada than it is in the US, but is the um, distance, right? Because if you're going to be part of an electric system, you're part of a network, and building those wires is very capital intensive, extremely expensive. And, uh, and the generation technologies that we've had for the past hundred years have been very, very, very large scale, right? So big enough to harness all of that force coming over Niagara Falls. And um, having, having a community that's big enough to be able to justify that investment is really the important economic hurdle for weighing the benefits and the costs. And so if you think about, you know, uh, smaller countries, smaller communities and countries in Africa, for example, that's one of the challenges hmm. for building out electric networks there and where the, um, the innovations that we're seeing in small scale distributed generation will likely enable more electrification there because you can make those investments at a smaller scale. And so they'll be economical for smaller populations or more widely spatially distributed populations. That makes so much sense. Okay, so then let's talk about the development because it's sort of interesting that even in rich countries that do have 100% electrification, we are talking about microgeneration too, maybe for different reasons. But it does make some sense to me that as you're talking about large scale providing sufficient electricity to large populations, you would have begun with hydropower, but we also have other big sources of energy that we've used, um, coal, natural gas, nuclear. When did they enter into the picture? It's um, the, the, the most mature technology is hydro. And we've been using hydro power for, um, to, to, sub, to replace humans and animals for work for millennia right we started that in the, you know probably even before the romans but certainly in the roman uh in the roman empire we had uh water power doing doing work that humans and animals to replace humans and animals in terms of electricity generation hydro are some of the first uh big resources to be developed and you know canada canada has quite a bit of very very productive hydroelectric uh, and in the U.S., we also have um, have fairly substantial, uh, some co-located right <laughs> right next to Canada, others further in like in the southeast. Uh, that um, I think the the hydro generation started in that kind of 1880s. Interestingly, and I'm not sure if this is true in Canada, but in the U.S., um, the the build out of hydroelectric facilities starts and it looks like it starts in areas that have a lot of mining. Hmm. 
So you know, along sense. the Sierra Nevadas in California is where you first see you first see hydroelectric really pop up. Um, so that's interesting. And then is it considered a green source of power today? We certainly do in in Canada, but I get the sense that it's not universally accepted as a green source of power today. I think that it, it's green. It's green in some ways and not green in others. Um, considered both for ecosystem reasons, but also for political economy reasons. Um, so green clearly in the sense that it doesn't produce uh, criteria pollutant emissions, you know, nitrogen oxide, sulfur dioxide, particulate matter. Um, it doesn't produce greenhouse gas emissions. So it's, it's clean, it's green in that sense, where I think um, developing hydro in say the 1970s and 80s kind of hit um, you know hit, hit a, a point of tension because developing new hydro sites also has a trade-off associated in terms of the impact on ecosystems and so you see in the 1980s and 90s that um, the increase in regulations on hydro facilities that you know if you're going to continue operating or if you're going to expand then you have to build this salmon ladder so that the salmon can swim back upstream and and so so part of it is that trade-off that trade-off between different environmental objectives that are in conflict and part of the way we have to use public policy is to try to mediate that conflict um, but the political economy sense in which they are considered not green is that I think there's been a large political impetus to increase the um, installation of renewables, particularly wind and solar. And so I think a lot of public policy focused on encouraging the adoption of wind and solar like in the U.S. at the state level, we have these regulations called renewable portfolio standards and renewable resources are definitely excluding hydro. Huh. So, um, you know, so a lot of the kind of political economy impetus to build more renewables very explicitly excludes hydro. Isn't that interesting? So tell me the coal story then, because coal obviously was used for home heating prior to being used for electricity. Mm -hmm. And based on some of the things you've just said about hydro, I, I suspect that's when coal became more attractive. And I, I don't know if it's the case everywhere, but in places where they used a lot of coal-fired electricity, it was they found a, a site where they could essentially just plop a plant on top of it so that they were, didn't have to have all the extra costs of mining and transport. They were able to, to essentially just use it on site. And so I'm, I'm just wondering when, when that movement began, because coal in, in uh, America not just so us and canada had a a, a a real run until recently and I'm, I'm trying to understand when that began and why i think it's it's definitely in the early 20th century and um the the idea the the innovation was the steam turbine mm -hmm. and so you know the the turbine taking the and, and the turbine is essentially, you know, based on the old water wheel. So basically, if you, you know, kind of think of taking a water wheel and uh, shrinking it down, well, in large scale coal-fired power plants, you're not shrinking it down, you're actually enlarging it. But, but you can think of it as um, you're taking a water wheel 
and you kind of curve the paddles so that they're blades and it looks very much like we think of a jet engine you know if you look at, at the jet engine while you're sitting on the plane it's got these little curved blades and um and so what that turbine does is, is so what you do is you basically burn coal to boil water to create steam to turn that turbine and the turbine basically as far i'm not an engineer but um you know sits in a magnetic kind of a magnetic cylinder and when the turbine turns that creates it throws off electrons and creates a current and so that current gets pushed down the wire uh and that is an early 20th century technology for the most you, part you've, de you've described it very well so it makes me now understand why we've seen such a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions as a lot of those plants have been repurposed to natural mm -hmm. gas um is is natural is, is it is that a fairly simple process you know we've watched it happen and we've seen the benefits of it we've seen that there's it's been driven by economics too because natural gas prices were so low i don't want to presume that any of these things are easy but that's the way you've described it, it sounds like that's a, a pretty good yeah. use of the uh, of the retired coal plants is to repurpose them that way i think it, it is and there is, has been um you know some retrofitting of old coal plants so that they can use natural gas instead. Um, there is a, a, a separate turbine technology for natural gas called the combined cycle natural gas turbine uh, that basically came out of jet engine technology innovation in the 1980s. And it operates at a much, it can operate at a much smaller scale. And it's essentially, you know, take a jet engine and um, you know, hook it up to some to some methane and you know use the methane to boil water to create steam and but then it's a combined cycle so it adds an additional process where it um captures waste heat and waste gases from the that go through that first process and then it re it kind of recycles those and Maybe. so it's much more energy efficient the big coal-fired uh turbines coal-fired power plants uh they at their maximum their the absolute best in show of those technologies are like maybe 55 60 percent energy efficient and five huh. percent waste heat so just you know and that's that's kind of best in show <laughs> it's much more likely to be like 40 percent efficient well it and makes sense then i mean this is the the perfect marriage that when you can find a technology that is greener, so less polluting on a whole range of fronts, not just uh, greenhouse gases, but but harmful pollutants too. Uh, and it's also cost-effective. That's kind of the holy grail that you go for. I, before I move on to wind and solar, let's talk about nuclear because I'll, I'll fully admit to being an, a nuclear fan, especially as we're talking about it in the context of small-scale nuclear, because I think that's a less terrifying proposition for consumers to be located next to a small-scale nuclear um, facility. But I don't know how easily we're going to get to a point where that is deployed. I mean, it's deployed for military uses because we've got submarines, don't we, where they are powered by uh, these type of small modular reactors. So you'd think it would be fairly easy to find a civilian use for them. And yet we haven't seen deployment yet. And maybe you can explain where we were versus where we are now. And, and maybe nuclear has just been so tarnished. It's going to take a lot longer before it comes on stream. Yeah. I, I think that's a good way to say it, that the nuclear has been tarnished the and the, the old, you know, kind of large scale 
technology that we've used in the in the U.S. Uh, the light water reactor, which was started, you know, started a lot of investment in the 1970s, turned out to be very, very expensive to build, more expensive than they were budgeted for, and to take a lot longer to, to build. And so those costs then flowed through in the regulated rates that, that end-use customers paid. And, um, and I think it, it led to some of, led to the impetus for regulatory restructuring in many states in the U.S., in Ontario, in Alberta, um, that you know the states that have really gone through and tried to revamp their regulations to try to introduce more markets and competition um, with mixed success, I guess I would certainly say. Even you know thinking about kind of the comparison between Alberta and Ontario, uh, in terms of nuclear, though, the there's so much interesting research going on right now, as you say, in the small scale modular reactors with different kinds of technologies. There's a molten salt technology. Um, and then there's there, there are others that um, all try to generate as much um, as much power as possible while also minimizing the amount of um, waste fuel. You know, so they and and to the extent that they don't fully use the fuel, they encase the fuel in some way that makes it um, less prone to be a radioactive hazard and less prone to be a um, national security hazard with a dirty bomb type thing. So, so I think the the smaller scale and the the better safety characteristics are. Um, I hope going to overcome the regulatory hurdles that um, that 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 nuclear faces, and I know of a couple of utilities in the U.S. that have some new small-scale modular reactors on their investment plans for like five years from now. Wow! So, oh, that would be very so rapid. About it. Mm-hmm. So, so the way you've described the system, you've got a lot of incumbents now. And when you have incumbents, incumbents like to keep the system as it is. And I can understand why it developed that way. So you've got very large plants, whether they're hydro, coal, natural gas, or nuclear, a system of transmission lines taking them to a larger center, and then a whole network of distribution lines that get them to each individual household. And then we get a bill that shows up at uh, our door that that sometimes parses out what each of those costs are. So now that you've built that system out, it seems to me that uh, trying to do the system a different way, where you bring in more micro generation, that faces an awful lot of resistance. And I, I don't know if you can draw a parallel to give us some some thinking about, we, we did manage to break up these kinds of systems in the past. And the best one is probably telecommunications that I still remember um, having to call long distance at six o'clock on a Sunday night and only stay on the phone for a few minutes because it was so expensive. I'm old enough that I could still remember that. And kids today probably wouldn't have any clue what I'm talking about. But that is is how dramatically things have changed in, in sort of 30 or 40 years. So it can happen. I just don't know how I see how it would happen in the electricity system. So, so give me some sense of where you think it could potentially go if it followed the same path. My my favorite was, and this was when I was in college, 
after it was before before the advent of mobile telephony, but after caller ID. And so I could call home and let the phone ring and my parents could see that it was me who was calling and I could hang up. So I didn't have to pay, but then I, they would know that I was in my room and they could call me. <laughs> <laughs> it's again, so funny. The kids wouldn't even think about that today. No I mean, now, do, I don't even know if they have cell plans that are not Canada wide or, or even, you can even get a cheap add on when you go to another country as well. And it's, of course, nobody so makes far. phone calls anymore. So <laughs> there is that too. We all text. It's, it's very, very true. But and and I would add to your list of things about electricity. Not only does the bill sometimes break out the you know the wires charge and the energy charge and and the you know depending on depending on how the regulators authorize the rate to be determined, you know the 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 regulated electric rate can be. Uh, calculated by a very complicated formula, um, trying to account for, for certain things that have to do with us being in this shared network, but having different behavior in the shared network. It was, all, it was kind of easier in the 1920s when basically the only thing you could do was, was pre pretty much like lighting and your refrigerator and your washing machine. Because right? then everyone's pretty much doing the, in the as residential customers, they're all pretty much doing the same thing and to the same degree. But now, the variety does mm -hmm. of, of what we do and how we do it does make us even more different from each other as consumers. And if you're trying to impose a uniform regulatory uh, treatment to all these different residential customers you're going to have mismatches and and potential you know unfairness and injustice and that, that i'm sure we'll come to when we talk Is about this, solar you know, as you're talking i'm thinking of a story i heard just recently that our power grids if everybody wanted to buy an electric car tomorrow to plug it in our power grids would all need to be upgraded to accommodate that happening. I, th I think the, the number I was given is that uh, most grids could only support six cars being plugged in yeah. at a time. And so <laughs> then you have a $20,000 upgrade you need to do and who pays for that? So that, I guess, gets to the point of not everybody's going to be using electricity the same way in future, but it creates a big problem if you've got a postage stamp size or a postage stamp model for how you, how you, uh, how you deliver and charge on electricity. And, and to your point, the the the, um, the way that we think about how we, you know, the the system was built, and you know, we're we're still basically living in Edison, Tesla, and Westinghouse's system, where the system was built for large scale generation to be sited far away from where humans live, and then transported over this high voltage transmission network to where the humans live. And then the voltages drop down using transformers onto the distribution grid and sent to our homes, our shops, our offices, our factories. And that one-way flow was, you know, the, 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 the architecture of that network for one-way flow was very deliberately designed for those large-scale producers who are always producers and smaller scale consumers who are always consumers. Whereas now between digitization of the grid, which gives us much more sensing and monitoring and automation capabilities and the growth of smaller scale 
resources, um, you know, solar, electric vehicles, and so on, um, the, that one-way grid is not well suited, right? It's not, it's not adapted to the different ways that these different resources can interact on the grid. And so my, um, my, in terms of the, you know, not our current grid, not being able to accommodate many electric vehicles, um, there are some changes to make that, that I think would be beneficial. One is uh, a very much engineering challenge of how do we change the distribution network, right? The small scale distribution network to enable two way flow. Hmm. Whereas, you know, it's been, it's been architected for one way flow to, you know, to the home, to the office. But now, you know, with our electric vehicles, with batteries, with solar on the roof, we can be producers as well as consumers. Interesting. Okay. I want to get, I want to understand the implications of what you said, but I, I don't want to leave Nikola Tesla, Tesla uh, <laughs> until I ask you whether this is true or not, because there've been, there've been stories or, and Hollywood renditions of his life where they talk about him having developed technology that I think of as being kind of similar to a wireless cell phone tower, mm -hmm. where I gather it shoots out electrons that you could then develop a device that would automatically receive those electrons and charge it a lot mm -hmm. like how I'm able to use my cell phone. But I don't know if that is, is that unproven technology? Is it dangerous or is Wire, it uh, yeah. imaginary? <laughs> wireless distribution is, was, was Tesla's holy grail. And, and he did, did a proof of concept of it. And he had a, I think, if I recall correctly, his, he had a big um, demonstration project of it out in Colorado. And I'm, I'm gonna go do a, a field trip at some point and find this, but uh, Tesla fangirl that Excellent. I am. <laughs> but um, but it, is, it is one of the reasons why we're not, it, we're gonna struggle to have the equivalent in electricity of, of the mobile phone, right? Is that, uh, you know, in, in communications and telephony, we were able to use the radio spectrum to, and to, to figure out a technology for communicating data as, as these digital zero one packets, binary packets. And um, at some level, there are electricity has some similarities with that, but it has some very profound differences, mm -hmm. and those differences are making it challenging to do wireless distribution. Although Tesla has done a proof of concept, there are researchers who are working on it. My, the last time I saw anything on this, I think they had gotten to about three feet. Hmm. <laughs> it's not going to work which, very well. <laughs> which is better than, you know, which is better, but. Um, but yeah, I don't think I don't think wireless distribution is going to be the the disruptor in electricity that wireless telephony was for communication. Okay, so then let's talk about the other option, uh, which is that each home becomes not just a consumer but also a producer, and so you've got a, a two way movement of those electrons. So, so explain to me a, a little about what why that isn't happening. I remember a project. I'm delighted to hear you you are intimately aware of it. I, I remember doing an interview years ago about a project in New York uh, about brownstone buildings, and they were able to put solar panels on the roof and then do a peer-to-peer -to, -peer to sell to each other in a way that avoided some of the exorbitant costs that the utility companies can often charge. Because as 
is I've seen this unfold, and maybe from a policy perspective, it's different in different jurisdictions. It seems like they charge you the exact same amount for distribution and transmission when you're using the lines to push out electrons as you are when you're trying to receive them. And that can just blow up the uh, the affordability of those types of models. So I want to talk about policy, but I, I'm wondering if you could tell me a little more about that project, if I'm describing it right, mm -hmm. and if it uh, is a breakthrough or if it ran into some barriers that have prevented it from being adopted elsewhere. It, it is a breakthrough and it ran into barriers. So. <laughs> So both are true. Um, this is the, I think, the Brooklyn microgrid project that LO3 Energy uh, ran, and it was largely a proof of concept about the ability to do peer-to-peer -peer energy and have the transactions recorded on a blockchain. So, huh. so it was it was primarily, I would think, a blockchain project. And the idea with blockchain is is of course to have um, you know, blockchain is a system that enables trust, the kind of trust you need for really good transactions and good markets to develop in an automated anonymized system. And, um, and so you, they use the blockchain to keep track of all the transactions. And, um, and uh, you know, it was very peer-to-peer, -peer, very community-based. And the idea with the, with the project is, um, in addition to the cost saving is the idea of having a local community ethos, the I want to buy and sell with my neighbors, I want to, I want to have our energy choices be be green and to be part of our community. And so it's it's a very kind of communitarian type ethos, in addition to the, the economics. Um, the, the, Can I just add one more thing? I remember sure. one more thing about that story about why the peer-to-peer -peer was so important is that the a lot of the utility companies will charge you one price when you're buying from them and then pay you a totally different price when they're buying from you. So they sort of treat you. Uh, so I, if I remember it right, it was, you know, they might charge you 10 cents a kilowatt hour if you're buying from them and then they'll buy your electricity back for one cent a kilowatt hour. But if you can find a neighbor who's willing to have a fairer price, then you get a better transaction on, on, on both sides. That's That was sort of one of the other barriers that I yeah. think they managed to overcome in this project. And I think this, this, this question about, you know, as you have more people who have rooftop solar, who have electric vehicles, who have batteries, and they can, they, those resources, those distributed resources that people own, they can use as resources to provide not just energy to, to sell with their neighbors, but also they can provide what we call grid services, hmm. right? So in order, in order for you to have reliable um, electric service, there's a whole bunch of engineering stuff that has to happen. And you know, they go by names of like you know, voltage support, voltage regulation, frequency regulation, reactive power, um, you know, all of these kind of down in the deep layers of the system engineering things that have to happen. And because of course, electricity needs to stay in supply demand balance in real time or almost real time. Uh, and otherwise, you know, it, 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 it can be unsafe uh, and the service would be unreliable and, you know, the, the kind of three main the three main objectives policy objectives in the electric system are safety reliability and affordability 
So, um, so it's very important to keep that balance. And there's this whole host of grid services that helps that happen. So if you have an electric vehicle, you can provide some of those grid services in, you know, if you're, if your local piece of the network is having some kind of instability, you can provide, you know, use your stored energy in your EV battery to provide some grid service to stabilize the grid in your, in your area, and you should be paid for it. Okay. And so, you know, there's the, um, the question of when you generate excess off of your solar panel uh, on the roof, how much are you paid? And that's, you know, comes from this longstanding, um, at least in the U.S., uh, longstanding regulation called net energy metering. And net metering is, um, was again, this, you know, very much a policy put in place to try to encourage the development of renewables, right? And so back to our hydro conversation. And it's a it, it's an analog era regulation because if you think about, um, you know, it, it, anyone who's probably over the age of 40 will remember, you know, if you go and you look at the electric meter on the outside of your home, it's going to be a lot of spinny dials mm -hmm. in a row. And so the way it keeps track is the dials just rotate and then you need to have either have a person come or later it would be automated uh, at the, you know, the end of every month to read the meter and take the difference between the end of this month and the end of last month, and that tells you how much your consumption was. Um, so you only learn what you're gonna pay at the end of the month, which is another problem with, with billing in this system. And, uh, and so uh, this net metering came about in the you know, 1980s as a way to try to encourage solar adoption and the theory was you basically spin the meter backwards, right? So you're rolling those dials backwards and that that was the way to compensate people for putting their excess generation out on the grid. And that would give them some extra inducement to invest in solar. But if you do that, what does that essentially mean? That essentially means that if you have solar on your roof and when you have excess generation that you're quote unquote selling back to the grid, your little spinny dial meter is spinning backwards, you're getting paid the full retail price. Mm -hmm. So you're getting paid, you know, and so your retail price includes not just the energy that you consume, but the distribution wires charge, other fixed charges, taxes, da da. You're getting rebated all of that for every single kilowatt hour of excess generation that you sell back. That creates a major incentive to do it if you could get right. compensated like that. Yeah, and, but it, it's if, if from an economic perspective, it's absolutely the wrong price to pay <laughs> unless you're trying to, as an advocate, trying to put the thumb on the scale to get increased solar penetration. Because when you're selling your energy back, you're using the wires and you're still, of course, you still have a contract with your utility to buy energy when your solar panels aren't running. So you're using the wires both ways when you're sending back your net energy. Can I then ask, because you, you planted a seed with me that I hadn't considered, is that maybe the way you offset the wires cost, because I, I take your point, if you're using them to have an energy come in um, and you're using it to energy go out, you probably should pay. But I hadn't considered that the batteries that are getting charged up provide that 
other role that you were talking about mm-hmm. of creating grid stability and have the ability to to push power back into the grid when it's needed. You, I, now I understand a little bit more about Elon Musk's power wall and why that would serve that purpose. And maybe you have a second battery on hand just so that you have the ability to do that. And maybe that's where the quid pro quo comes in is that there's some pricing model that allows for you to not uh, to, to get to get paid for the, the storage services that you're mm-hmm. providing that offset the cost of the wires. And maybe you end up with the same sort of the, at the same end. Yeah, so th- I think this is a different, it's a very different business model from the traditional vertically integrated regulated utility. And the idea is to have uh, local energy markets and to have people, you know, people can participate in local energy markets. And more importantly, their devices can participate in local energy markets, right? So let's say I'm, I'm a, a homeowner, I have a, um, I have a, a thermostat. Uh, I have solar on my roof and I have an electric vehicle. So I've got solar that can generate. I've got a thermostat, which means so I can produce. I have a thermostat, which I use to consume energy for heating and for cooling. And then my electric vehicle is a battery, right? So it can swing either way. Um, It's very much a resource that gives you flexibility. And if if I am a participant in a local energy market and we can, uh, and this local energy market is designed as what we call a transactive system, then what you can do is, is have your devices automated to participate in this local energy market where I can set my thermostat with a willingness to pay. You know, so I'm willing to pay this much for the electricity to run my air conditioner. And if the price goes above that, then change the temperature setting on my thermostat and have that all happen autonomously. Um, And the same with the electric vehicle, you know, your battery, you can, you can say if the price goes above a certain price, then I'll sell. Um, And if the price goes below a certain price, charge my battery. And, and if you, you can automate all of that. And that's the beauty of digitization in this system and the more you have these very diverse resources that are behaving in different ways at different times, the flexibility that that battery gives you to be either a buyer or a seller is profound, absolutely profound. Let me ask another question about storage, because um, as we've been talking about using more solar and wind, we've been talking about using it when it comes on, because you're going to get a lot of excess power for both solar and wind when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing, but to use an electrolysis process to create hydrogen so that you have a more, I don't know if hydrogen is necessarily the, a more stable way of holding energy, but it seems like it might have potentially more uses. Is there any micro generation uh, application of what I've just described? Is there any way to to use a hydrolysis process to 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 store your energy as hydrogen and then use it? I don't know for home heating or mm-hmm. in your water tank or even to to turn around and turn it into electricity. I think there's there's quite a bit of research going on right now with a different types of hydrogen that are uh, and they have different colors depending on there's green hydrogen and blue hydrogen and pink hydrogen depending on the process by which the hydrogen is is generated um, and uh, the it, most interesting application I've heard is to basically use it in combination uh, I don't remember if it's in combination with natural gas. Uh, 
or in combination with gasoline as a as a, a transportation fuel. But I think both of those are areas of very active research. Hmm. Um, so, and the one thing that, you know, there are all kinds of different storage technologies. The uh, turn electrolysis to turn, you know, because if, if you're, let me step back. There um, are, uh, once you have built the solar panels and the wind turbines, uh, what in economics we would call the marginal cost, right? The marginal cost of generating an additional kilowatt hour of electricity is very, very small, close to zero. Mm -hmm. And so from an efficiency perspective, if you've got the, the technology installed, you want to run that when when the solar when the sun is shining and when the wind is blowing. You want to run those things uh, because that's the cheapest way for you to generate electricity at that time. And it also, you know, to the extent that it also, um, and we see this in wholesale power markets that if if people who operate those facilities can bid them into the market at prices that are lower than coal or natural gas, it will also reduce emissions. Right, so the economic and the environmental benefits line up there. Um, one challenge is an aside, one challenge in wholesale power markets at the moment is that they're also displacing nuclear, which uh, from a greenhouse gas perspective is, is, is also not, not great. And so there are some challenges there about, um, about how, do we, how do we create market rules that reflect the full set of different attributes and different values that different um, technologies have. And that's, that's a continuing challenge. So, so talk uh, to me a bit more about the Brooklyn project, because I, I can now sort of see the vision mapped out a little bit more fully than, than I think my earlier preconception was, but why has it, I think I must've heard about it uh, five or six years ago. And yet I don't see these microgrids. Po uh, popping up everywhere. And yeah. so they must have encountered some problems. What are some of the problems they, that they, well, they confronted? One challenge is that they're still having to use the incumbents, you know, the utilities wires. So, so you know, the, the solar on the roof is still connected to the wires network. And, and so I think that's going to be the challenge in any in any of these situations any and there are there are other microgrid projects, but they are kind of starting small or they're you know, being done in in pilot projects that um, where, like for example, military applications, where we're not going to get a lot of public information about them, but they're really exploring them, and eventually they'll proliferate. Um, but the the challenge is that the wires network does still have those economies of scale and scope characteristics that we associate with natural monopoly, and so. Um, so at the moment, you know, if you want to trade and you want to be connected with your neighbors, being connected on this single wires network is, is, is the way to go. Um, but I think one of the, one of the things that is going to happen before we even start like all leaving you know, cause one thing you could do is what's called grid defection and just say, okay, well, I've got my solar, I've got my EV, I don't need the utility anymore. I'm out of here. Mm -hmm. And you just disconnect. Um, but then of course, you know, you give up this opportunity to, to trade with your neighbors. You also take on a risk because being connected to the grid 
gives you a higher probability of reliability and you can you have that kind of shared the benefits of the shared system but um but but you know that keeping that reliability up as you say in the in the context of having these intermittent resources like wind and solar you know which you you want to run them as much as you can when they're cheap but when the wind is blowing oftentimes is at times like two in the morning in January. <laughs> we're all bundled up and cozy in bed and not running our dishwashers. So, um, so that's one reason why storage is, has long been one of the holy grails of the electric system because it can impart this flexibility to give us more options to coordinate demand and supply across time. And that's that's something that's been really missing in the electric system to this point. So let's then talk about what happened with Texas, because I think that there is this notion that because wind and solar can work well at the micro scale in some applications, therefore it can work well in micro applications everywhere. And I I, I, I don't know that that's necessarily the case, but I want to explore it a little bit because mm -hmm. I, I thought Texas was really almost developing the perfect type of marriage that you could see an expansion of wind and solar because of the amount of natural gas power that they had, because natural gas, for the reasons we've talked about, it's a lot more flexible in turning on and off. So you can you can adjust it depending on what is is happening with the renewable surge. And so it looked to me like they were developing a foolproof system where you could get the less expensive energy coming on stream when the, the when you had the sun and the wind, but you also had the security and reliability of the natural gas backup. And then last winter happened and everything fell apart. So what happened? What went wrong? I think the punchline is nothing is foolproof. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. <laughs> Truly. Um, the And I, I still, I believe that Texas, Alberta, Australia are are the best models we have for um, for a very market based electric system. Hmm. And um, you know, the February events reveal some planning, kind of regulatory and planning challenges. And, and there was also some important economic challenges that it revealed. And in part, uh, so I, I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? I, I definitely say that I think a lot of the, the things that we see in the Texas model in Alberta, in Australia, are very important ways that, that highlight the value of using markets to coordinate supply and demand in real time to provide good investment incentives to provide low barriers to innovation. Right? And I think it's those low barriers to innovation that have really been the hallmark of the Texas system. And over the past 12 years, they've seen a very dramatic increase in installed wind capacity, much more than, you know, and, and I've recently been reading, uh, reading some articles with quotes in it like uh, from the system operator that said, you know, we installed double the wind that we expected and we we thought it was going to cause all these operations problems, but 
because of the, the market rules, we didn't have the problems that we had. And the, the good market rules allowed, you know, markets, markets, markets are like sponges, right? That they allow for more absorption of these new technologies because of the granular way that they allow supply and demand to coordinate. But of course, they're not perfect. You know, they're essential, but they're not perfect. And, and so in the February event in Texas, um, it, it was just this horrible, uh, horrible concatenation of, of really, really unusual circumstances. I wouldn't say unique because you know, bad, bad winter storms happen in Texas, but they only happen on kind of a every decade, every two decades kind of time frame. And so the planning, the um, system operator has a planning time frame for for reliability of about ten years, and the storms don't happen that frequently, although. You know, with climate change, they might be happening more frequently. We have more uncertainty, and so that's going to make this reliability planning harder. And it's, I think, the the ultimate benefit is going to be shifting our focus to resilience, mm -hmm. the ability of a system to absorb shocks and to rebound from shocks once they've happened. And that's a very different concept from reliability. Reliability is I flip the switch and the light goes on. And so, in a resilient system, you can have these you know, people who have the power wall in the garage and the electric vehicle, and they are connected together in a local energy market that sends them the right price signals so that they know, oh, hey, now would be a good time for me to charge my battery because we're getting close to system capacity. And, and what happened in, in February in Texas was really this combination of interdependent systems having failures that affected each other. And so the, the kind of, I, I think the, the proximate cause was the upstream freezing of the natural gas uh, supply system. And so, you know, it, they, they you know, couldn't extract more natural gas. Um, the contracts that the power that the generators thought they had with natural gas suppliers that they thought were firm, turns out weren't firm mm. because there's this kind of, you know, in, in quote unquote, in the public interest prioritization of natural gas for home heating when it's cold out and that reduced the supply available to power plants and the upstream gas suppliers, um, you know, they, they, weren't, they weren't fulfilling their contracts. And they physically couldn't, but they also weren't legally obligated to, um, because the you know the the wellheads aren't weatherized, um, the the power plants aren't weather aren't weatherized, because if you weatherize for cold in Texas, there's a cost associated with that because it then makes it less efficient for you to run in those hundred degree ninety six percent humidity days that the system is built for in August. So I think there were a lot of kind of interdependencies there that led to um, that led to this, including on the demand side, um, inefficient, very energy inefficient housing stock in Texas. Not a lot of insulation. You know, they're, it's not Alberta, so they're not used to. You know, they haven't invested in in the insulation. And so in the winter, you get a high demand for natural gas for power generation. 
on top of a high demand for natural gas for electric for heating home heating and part of the high demand for natural gas for power generation is because there's a high demand for electric heating so it was just a, this horrible horrible combination that they needed all of that to come on stream at once. It's sort of ironic that because of how cold we are in Canada and Alberta in particular, which is a major natural gas producer, we would mm -hmm. have the incentive to do all of those things that you've discussed. Um, so we do have a very reliant power grid on natural gas and a very reliant um, home heating system on natural gas as well. But I think it was our natural gas producers that were able to to step into the breach and provide on an emergency basis the gas that was needed to get things rolling again. But it, it does it does really um, then talk to an issue of policy because I think one of the frustrations that we that I observed just in coming from a a, a climate where six months out of the year you can have sub-zero weather, that when we get down to minus 30 degrees Celsius, the uh, solar panels are frozen and don't produce electricity. The, the, we get these things called a, an Alberta clipper. It's just a heavy set of cold air. And so mm -hmm. wind turbines don't, don't blow. And so there does seem to be this uniformity in thinking about what the solution ought to be. But yep. that solution doesn't work in in every environment. And I, I don't know how we square the circle on that because we all have, uh, we're sharing a, a global environment. We're concerned globally about emissions, but what works in a place where you've got a lot more sunshine, a lot more heat, the further south you go, doesn't necessarily work in a northern jurisdiction. I don't know if you've given some thought to how you, how yeah. you square that. I, I think that's exactly right. And you alluded to it earlier, and I, I want to pull it out and, and make it explicit that um, over the past, since 2008, right, since we really uh, increased the natural gas supply in North America through the combination of fracking and horizontal drilling, right? So since 2008, the shale revolution has dramatically increased the supply of natural gas and up until this year, you know, so we have to put the, the pandemic asterisk on, on the prices this year. But up until this year, the price of natural gas has been extremely low and so low that natural gas has really substituted for coal. And you alluded to it earlier in the power plants that that the kind of um, dual fuel and, and fuel shifting and retrofitting old coal power plants to natural gas has absolutely been happening. And given that natural gas generally has about half of the greenhouse gas footprint of, of coal, that is, is a large part of what has driven the reduction in CO2 emissions over the past decade, is exactly that substitution out of coal and into natural gas in power generation. But the other thing that, that you alluded to that, that a lot of people, I think, don't appreciate, and it's crucial, is that because um, and, and this does vary, as you say, spatially from place to place, because wind and solar are inherently intermittent and have different, uh, we call them capacity factors, but different operating capabilities in different locations, if they are going to be part of a reliable system and, and in most, or whether it's a regulated a system or a market-based system, either way, the system operator is going to prioritize reliable operations. If that wind farm or if that solar plant is going to be a reliable contributor to 
the system and is going to enter into contracts, right? To enter into legally binding contracts to dispatch um, on a certain schedule, they are going to have to have some kind of backup that mm -hmm. is these days is going to be natural gas. Maybe in the future that backup can be small scale nuclear um, or geothermal, uh, you know, but I, I think that this progression, this progression towards decarbonization is um, like any other evolution of technologies is necessarily going to be intermittent. It's not going to be smooth. Mm -hmm. There's going to be kind of punctuated places where stuff happens really fast. Then there are other places where it looks like a plateau and then stuff happens fast. But that the natural gas is back up. You know, the, the existence of natural gas and its flexibility um, is what has allowed the system to absorb as much wind and solar as it has. So natural gas has actually been a, 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 um, a catalyst for, for the growth of renewables at large scale. I am and so I glad think... to hear you say that because it's been my impression that that's been the case for a long time. And yet there still seems to be a resistance to looking at those three as being partners in creating reliability. Uh, I, I don't know if this is the solution, but I seem to recall uh, that, that this was the power, this was the policy in Montana, that if you did want to sell into the grid, you had to be able to firm up your supply. So if you were a wind far, a producer and you could produce 100 megawatts of, of wind at your peak, you had to always be able to produce 100 megawatts, which created that healthy dynamism that they had to partner with some other type of of generation. I think in most cases it was natural gas to make sure they could firm up the supply. And to me, that would be a very healthy way of proceeding. And yet it seems like it's an all or nothing in the discussion about wind and solar. And I, I maybe I'm misperceiving it. Maybe, maybe it's evolving, but it does seem like that is such a natural partnership for, yeah. for, for natural gas to be the backup to wind and solar. Well, I think, I think part of the challenge that we have in the pub, kind of public policy conversation is you know public policy is where we adjudicate our different beliefs about how as a you know shared community we should move forward with things that are challenging and, and usually involve costly infrastructure so um you know you you have a diversity of opinions and and you know a lot of the the kind of, um, I guess I would call it the climate, cl there, there are voices in the climate advocacy community who definitely are focused on 100% carbon-free, 100% decarbonization as fast as possible. And then you get a range, you know, of, yeah. And 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 so part of one of my one of my friends, Pete Betke, has this saying that is um, about economics that economics puts parameters on other people's utopias. And, <laughs> it's very and, true. It's a good line. And I I think in this case, you know, part of the part of the challenge of economists in in this conversation is that we come in and we say, you know, yes, decarbonization is valuable is important doing it as fast as is feasible is is a good thing but we have to take into account this combination of costs and benefits and the fact that we're trying to adjudicate all of these diverse perspectives through 
you know, through public policy. And um, that can be frustrating, time consuming, incremental. Um, but but I think that's part of why the, the perception that you're seeing that, you know, that's kind of, you know, 100% decarb tomorrow. And, um, you know, I think the technologies are making much more rapid progress than even we thought a decade ago. Completely. So I read a book um, by Peter Tertzakian called The End of Energy Obesity, and he put forward a vision for what the future might look like, where we would generate a certain amount of our energy in our home environment. We've talked about the, the ways to do that. I think the most sensible way of doing that right now seems to be with solar. I don't know if you can have a wind application that would work in a, a residential home and might be able to work on an acreage or a farm, but probably not in the, a downtown major center. And then we talked about the battery backup so that that not only helps you maintain stability, but also main, maintain stability for the grid. And then some, some regional development that there may be some projects that are of a, a larger scale, 200 megawatt hours, for instance, or, or something along those lines uh, that, that would allow you to bring in geothermal, maybe maybe wind turbines. But I still think that in the end, you're going to need those large scale projects that we started out with, the, the hydro or the, whatever replaces. I, I can see an evolution in coal plants having gone coal to natural gas to going to nuclear once we end up with a, a, a more palatable nuclear option. And I'm just wondering if you would envision this future being that way, where you still maintain some of the large installations, develop more regional power grids, and then have the local microgeneration? Or do you see something completely different? I, I do think that there will be a mix of scales of technologies and of spatial uh, locations. Um, and you know, there is still research going on in carbon capture, carbon capture and storage. So the kind of coal gasification and um, you know kind of siphoning off the the greenhouse gases before you use the coal to run the boiler to generate the electricity, um, you know that's a another technology that I hadn't mentioned before, but is still very much being tested, being researched, being improved. Uh, there are some um, industry pilots. Uh, it is, though, I, I will say, you know, as someone who lived, has lived in the state of Illinois for a very long time, the, 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 um, there was a carbon capture, coal gasification, um, kind of proof of concept pilot project in downstate Illinois that was started like in the 90s and just never, never panned out. So, so one of the things that's true about the technological change and innovation is it goes in fits and starts, there's dead ends. Um, and this is always going to be a, a bit of a policy challenge when you're, you're putting you know, taxpayer funding towards those projects. Um, but there is, so there is some, some I think, you know, public funding of those carbon capture projects and I should just add on because Alberta is going to be at the heart of a lot of those mm -hmm. projects. We already do have one that Shell has done with a with a, another uh, partnering with another company here. Most of our carbon capture is used for enhanced oil recovery, though, so <laughs> it's not seen to be particularly green. <laughs> In any case, 
So continue well, it, telling me your vision of how you, you think know, this unfolds. It is also, it is true that a lot of the technologies that we use in cleaner applications now were developed for less cleaner applications in the past. So, you know, these, these things evolve. But I think you're exactly right that there's, and, and I think of it as, um, you know, it's that resilience, you know, the more, the more we, we have access to these different technologies at different scales with different attributes and capabilities, um, we're really going to want to focus on flexibility and on resilience. And so to my mind, that sounds like we want to have a diverse portfolio, mm -hmm. diverse in, in fuel type, diverse in technology type, diverse in scale, diverse in location. And, but that then means we're simultaneously going to be more able to have our own generation and kind of supply ourselves and disconnect from the grid. But also that will mean that if we can use the grid to create markets to connect us to each other, that there will be more reasons to stay connected to the grid and take advantage of the diversity in this portfolio. Exactly. So tell I'm not sure how it's going to play out. Well, tell me a little bit about the power of these natural monopolies, because that's another issue. And we've grappled with it in jurisdictions where we've announced early phase outs of coal plants, for instance, that there's a discussion of stranded assets. And it does seem to me that if you had the ultimate decentralized grid, there's the potential for a lot of stranded assets out there, mm -hmm. not just the large sites for generation, but also the massive investments that have been made in, in large scale transmission lines. Probably the distribution lines will continue to be of value, but does that huge amount of sunk cost create a, an inertia to keep things the way they are? I mean, that could be why we're seeing such a, a strident all or nothing type of approach from those who are trying to push the change, because it's a lot easier to just default and say, hey, we built this to last 50 to 75 years. We got, you know, <laughs> a lot of time to go. Is there, is there some right. policy thinking around how we should look at that issue? They, yes. And I think, um, and, you know, we saw this in, in the provinces and states that restructured in the 1990s, that part of, part of that bargain in the 1990s was, you know, the, the pitch was really the move to competitive wholesale power markets. And that, um, moving to competitive wholesale power markets would make the electric system more efficient. It would reduce costs to, to customers. And uh, part of the responses of the incumbent utilities was, well, okay, regulators, you're the ones that authorized us in the public interest as a prudent investment to invest in this generation plant that you're now telling me I'm not going to get paid for. And so I think um, in economics, we have a fancy name for this. We call this Calder Hicks compensation, where if in aggregate, the move from outcome A to outcome B is beneficial, but um, some of the parties are bearing more of the costs and others are getting all the benefits. If the people who are getting the benefits can compensate the ones who are bearing the costs, that's going to make the move from A to B happen. And so one way you can interpret these stranded cost payments is that's enabling us to move from A to B. And so I think part of the challenge is, um, you know, the regulatory process is, is inherently administrative, inherently bureaucratic, and inherently relies on 
everyone involved in thinking about the investment decision, making kind of good faith forecasts of what they think is going to happen. And then, of course, you know, regulators and the economists who work for regulators kicking the tires on that, on those forecasts. And, um, and I think that's usually the foundation for then making those stranded cost payments legitimate in the future, right? So if we say, okay, go invest in that, you know, natural gas fired power plant. And, you know, 10 years from now, it turns out that, you know, that natural gas power plant is not in a good location. The transmission to attach it to something else is never going to get built. People are completely relying on their solar. Um, you know, if, if the world has evolved in a way that, that the planners didn't predict, um, then that's the, that's the, that's the scenario in which the, um, you know, they get paid for the stranded assets. And I struggle as, as, as a, as someone who really wants to see as much of this done through markets, market processes and market cooperation as possible. Uh, I struggle to think of an alternative way to, to make that, that part of the process any better. So when government is still facing uncertainty. It, it makes sense to me. If government has intervened to create a particular outcome, and then that outcome is not optimal in the market, it does make sense they'd have to intervene again to correct mm -hmm. perhaps the initial incentives they created. Now, let me ask you if there's a similar economic concept for this question of affordability. Because what we observe is that in environments where electricity is heavily reliant on fossil fuel for production. They're, they're layering on carbon taxes. And I don't know if you've got this happening in American states quite as much as we have here, but we, we do in Canada. We've been living under that now for a couple of winter seasons. And the challenge now is that you've got natural gas prices escalating for the supply uh, chain reasons we've been talking about. Layering on top, you also have carbon taxes, which makes it electricity, which makes, makes it expensive as well. And I worry about what happens to the fixed income senior in January when there, when you see the, the highest escalation in prices for not only electricity, but also for heat. It, it does seem to me that there's a, a utopian world that all you have to do is just make things more expensive and people will install solar panels and we'll be able to move. Right. But in practice, there's a transition problem. And yeah. the people who are most in need of the affordability question, because those are when trade-offs really occur. If you're a fixed income mm -hmm. senior and your bill spikes up a couple hundred dollars, that impacts your ability to buy your medications or yeah. take yourself out for a meal. It affects your grocery bill. So those are, I'm not sure what, I, what economics would have to say about that, but there's a, a real equity issue that I, I think we're encountering in our, in our desire to move quickly towards a particular outcome. There is a real equity issue. And yeah, we don't, uh, I know Washington state uh, following the lead of BC tried twice to, uh, to implement a carbon tax through a voter referendum and for various political economy reasons, both votes failed to pass. So we don't really have any carbon taxes. Um, I mean, there are some regional kind of regional markets. California has has a, essentially a carbon tax, and then there's a regional market in the Northeast that has a carbon tax, but they're kind of isolated examples. But the the example that we have in the US that 
fits what you've just described um, is with this uh, net energy metering for solar on your roof. And uh, for example, in a state like California, where sun is abundant, and so there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of economic justification for solar. It's gonna the, they're gonna generate a lot of electricity for you. And so you put solar on your roof, you enjoy an uh, investment tax credit. Um, often, I think, or they've, they've expired now, but California had also been offering a state level subsidy for installing solar. Um, the equity issue comes up in two ways. Number one, the disproportionately, the, the, the evidence is showing that disproportionately the people who install solar are those who have roofs. <laughs> and, and don't live in multi-unit rental dwellings. And so, so higher income people are disproportionately the ones who are installing solar and therefore receiving the subsidies thereof. And number two, the way net metering is, is um, structured because it sends the wrong price signals. And it, you know, it's basically spinning your meter backwards. If you put excess generation back and you're also consuming from your own solar panels, you're really not paying towards the wires charges, towards the wires component of the cost. And so you're not paying towards the shared network. And so a lot of those costs disproportionately fall on those longer, lower income. Um, so I think that your example of the carbon tax and, and the example of net metering both illustrate that these administratively determined regulated prices um, don't adapt well to changing conditions. And so one of the things that my, my collaborators and I are working on, we're working on building a transactive system as an alternative where um, if you own, even if, even if you own you know, a Nissan Leaf, so a fairly small, relatively inexpensive electric vehicle, you could be paid for you know, selling energy to other people or um, using your battery for grid support. Um, and so, so there are some, by having local energy markets that have lower participation barriers and lower barriers to entry, um, that that could help to, I think the word that a lot of people use is democratize the grid. And um, another thing that, that I, I would like to see, there are some developers who are working on like community solar, you could do community mm -hmm. geothermal. Um, and, you know, they are being done now very much within the regulated, kind of as a regulated program. But you can also imagine those being done uh, as, as a market investment as well. Um, so, but I do think that the equity issue is a big challenge. And one thing that, from a policy perspective, that I think we could improve is is thinking separately and carefully about low income, uh, low income home energy assistance, because historically for the past 120 years, the regulated rates have been used as social policy. And I think unbundling the social policy from the price of electricity would enable us to say, to, to get the efficiency benefits, right? Because, you know, if, if we if the the if if the, the prices of electricity are going to reflect the costs associated with the environmental impacts of electricity, then at the margin 
it is efficient for that relative price to become higher compared to the other things we consume. But that's going to have implications. And that's so so thinking about low income housing energy assistance while still trying to communicate um, you, you know, communicate the right benefits and costs through a market process. For me, that's the sweet spot of policy. That, and it's such a great insight because you're right. We're, we're sort of trying to get the regulated rate to do two things at once. Mm -hmm. And it, it can't. It can't it can't simultaneously send the signal that you should be switching to different types of fuel and be more energy efficient as well as protect those who are low income. I wish we could well, have this the one, the one thing, yeah. I'm sorry, to, one thing that is working in the benefit of is that because the cost of solar and the cost of wind have been falling so much in the past decade, those economic and environmental incentives are aligning at least to that extent, but it would still be much better if we could unbundle them. Well, I wish we could have this conversation in 2050 to see how this turns out, because <laughs> there's going to be as much change as you've seen in the last 50 years. There's going to be a great deal more change in the next 30. Thank you so much for the conversation today. Thank you. That was Lynn Kiesling. She is a research professor and co-director with the Institute for Regulatory Law and Economics at the University of Colorado. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and wherever you stream your podcasts. And to stream old episodes, learn more about the show, and where to subscribe and submit your questions for future guests, visit fraserforum.org.